This is an ABC podcast. Nothing seems certain anymore. Threats to our security are everywhere. Terrorism, floods, fires, pandemics and climate change. And no time to relax. You have to pick yourself up when disaster strikes and then think about how to prepare for the next one. I'm Paul Barclay, and in this Big Ideas, you'll hear from four women who are in the business of moderating all kinds of risk. Arson, extremism, climate change, and risks in our built environment. This discussion comes from Victoria University, and it's hosted by RN's Natasha Mitchell. The speakers are civil engineer, Professor Zora Wurzel, natural hazards researcher Celeste Young, psychologist Dr Cara Dadswell, who works with young people who light fires, and Professor Deborah Smith, a specialist on violent extremism. Certainly we're more aware of risks. I think we're bombarded with risks. It's the environment, our, you know, our media environment, our connectivity means that we are much more aware of what happens not only in our own little sphere but also what happens on a global scale. So I think we can perceive ourselves to be in a constant state of risk and precarity. So in some ways um, the question of whether we are in more risk or whether we just perceive more risk, it becomes mute when it starts to impact on the way and our safety and our sense of being able to go through the world and live our lives. It's interesting because by many measures we live in in safer times. Zora, what do you think? I agree with what you just said because uh, being somebody who left her own country some 20, 30 years ago because of the war, I uh, know what some other risks are, but as an engineer on the other side, uh, risk is embedded in everything that we do. They call us very pessimistic people, but we learn from failures <laughs> and we design to prevent failures. So although not necessarily explicit all the time, but risk and resilience is embedded in everything that we design and that we do. To answer your first questions, it does feel, at least in our lifetime, history has been inundated by very risky events, but at least in our time, it feels like, especially last couple of years, um, it is undeniable the extreme weather events are upon us, and obviously things like terrorist threats and a lot of, um, we just came out of pandemic, so clearly we are probably experiencing a lot more than we have probably in the past, at least in Australia. Yes, I wonder whether sometimes it's it's the fact that we have a 24-7 media that tells us that, that there is more going on and, th- and that we live in a riskier time and whether in fact we really do. Celeste Young, what do you think? I mean, you've been tracking how communities respond to risk over many years now, risky events like natural hazards, like bushfires and other environmental disasters. What's your sense of the present moment? Well, I I think the thing is when you're talking about communities, you're talking about this whole interconnection of things like you've got people living in places, we've got more people on the planet than we've ever had and they're living in places they haven't lived before. The events are getting more extreme at different ends and... Generally, people are prepared for what they expect, whereas now we're having events that are unexpected and by the time the next event comes along, they haven't even recovered from the first event. These cascading events compound and when you look, because I'm a bit of a a risk dweeb, (laughs) I've been watching how they've been illustrated on an international level now for a number of years and they are getting much, much more complex And it's perhaps because we can see them, but you've got things like the intersection of digital media and things like that. So you've got that whole other stream of different risks that we haven't had before, that space between technology and people. And that's an intensely personal type of risk, isn't it? Because it's there on our phones, people are engaging with us or trolling us. But there's also the physical risks in communities too because we're hitting levels of exhaustion and levels of resilience or needs for resilience that we just haven't had before. People knew how to deal with bushfires, but when we went in after the communities came out of lockdown from the Black Summer bushfires, it was a really different environment to be in because we hadn't had that intersection of those two events and no-one had thought, what happens if you can't touch people? 
what happens if you can't be in close proximity. So I think, yes, they, they are getting more complex and more difficult. Cara, what's your sense? Truthfully, the, you said before about, you know, how our access to social media and, and more media is, is making us more aware of risk. But I think in our case and probably even in Deb's case with the sort of work that we do looking at um, people as the, the risk in a sense, it, technology has increased the risk and it's made it more complex because technology gives us the ability to be so much more widespread and, and reach so many more people. So for people that are engaging in risk behaviours, their ability to influence others is increased with technology. There's an amplification of yeah. that risk because yeah. of the nature of the tools now at people's disposal. Deborah Smith, you study violent extremist behaviour uh, in Australia and I wonder to what extent the nature of that threat is increasing and evolving. What are you keeping your eye on as a researcher right now? It's a really interesting time to be in my area. Um, if you think about, like, if we, if we even go back to that, are we in riskier times? I don't think 20 years ago I would have thought that democracy was at risk as a, a form of political organisation. But what we're seeing now is actually a substantive threat to the actual rules-based order. So, you know, what we saw in the capital, you can see it as a riot, you can see it as an insurrection. I see it as part of a broader movement, a broader anti-democratic movement. And we haven't led this in Australia. We have certainly responded, though. We have seen these same patterns of behaviour start to become involved in our society. And so we're seeing the, the rise of a fascist right. Uh, this is not a political position. This is a... I go... Uh, out of my way to tell conservative politicians that this is not your base, that these are people who will actually um, seeking to undermine the democratic process, not a political party. They see everybody who participates in the democratic process as actually, you know, part of the problem. And so I, I wouldn't have thought even 10 years ago that this would be something that we're facing. So I think that the, the space is, is moving really quickly. And if you think um, where everyone was really focused on, you know, the 9-11 moment and then the rise of ISIS. Nobody really had their eye to the backlash that was coming, which has been the rise of the far right. And I think where the other terrorist threats have been, um, you know, certainly uh, devastating impacts, I think what we're now seeing is actually a threat to our political system, which was never there with other systems. And that's very much part of the strategy of the extreme far right movement, if you can call it that, uh, that kind of ebbing away at the trust, chipping away at the trust at trust in democracy and governments, um, fostering social disharmony, that's part of the kit bag. It's the long game. So, you know, often in our area we focus on violence. So my uh, research area focuses on prioritising police resources around preventing violence. But the violence is in service of something else and the, the thing that the violence is in service of is the collapse of a broader system. And so I think whilst it's absolutely right that we focus on the prevention of violence, we also need to have an eye to to that broader threat to the, you know, the long game of the far right, because, um, you know, that is, I think, here to stay for a little while. Let's get a sense of the nature of the threat. Celeste uh, mentioned that COVID had made the recovery for those affected by the big 2019 bushfires, um, you know, the recovery process so much harder, so much more complex. What about you, Deborah? How has this pandemic facilitated, alongside, I guess, the Trump presidency, the growth of the extreme right? And let's put Brexit in there movement for Brexit. completion. Look, I think all violent extremist movements, regardless of their badge colours, if you like, they will thrive in periods of panic, of people not trusting in the institutions, of people being isolated. So in a way, um, the COVID pandemic has really created, I mean, for want of a better word, it's been candy land for violent extremist movements because uh, people are just more 
online, so they're more available to be contacted. The protective factors that we normally have in society, so going to see our family, you know, our jobs, these sorts of things, these protective factors have been whittled away through the COVID pandemic. And so people who would not normally have thought and, and may even not be conscious that they're getting involved in a, a essentially an extremist movement are suddenly um, engaging in this. And that's not to say that all people who take to the streets people take to the streets and democracy requires, you know, protest is, is a very legitimate form of um, activity. But within the edges of those movements, far-right extremists are working around, they're making connections, they're validating grievances and they're, they're building relationships. And n nobody goes out there and says, you know, do you want to become a Nazi? This is the, the way they operate, by validating and sharing grievances. And um, so... COVID has created an environment where there's a lot more people that you can actually contact and, and engage with on that level. Are some people more at risk of turning to an extreme far-right movement than others? Yeah, so there's a lot of research that tries to look at that. In the end, it is quite idiosyncratic. So, I mean, it's kind of a, a given in our area of research that there's no single pathway, there's no terrorist profile. But certainly there's things that can make people more vulnerable, that there's, we would call those a, a lack of protective factors as opposed to a particular um, risk factor. So, yeah, things like, um, you know, being socially isolated or, or having no sense of meaning or purpose. We often focus on the, the doctrine, the ideology, the political arguments, but in actual fact, these are really identity movements. It's about you know, who you identify with, who you hang around with, what music you listen to, who you like, who you don't. These are the basis of these movements, you know, and that a lot of people don't learn the arguments till they're already in. And what uh, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok algorithms are reaching you <laughs> Indeed, uh, according to yes. your interests, yep. which is a very powerful force too. Cara Daswell, your research focuses on fire uh, lighting as a risky behaviour in young people in particular. Just give us a sense of how significant that risk is, because I guess we hear about cases of arson at times of big bushfire, but there's a sort of continuum of behaviours that, that might culminate in an act of arson, isn't there? Yeah, I think um, one thing with um, young people is we don't, um, it's not typically called arson. Often young people who are engaging in firelighting or fireplay are not, you know, when you, if you see a headline, teenagers light fire, it's um, often it's an, quite an innocent and naive act. It's not, wasn't intended to get out of hand. It wasn't intended to cause harm and damage. Um, so from that perspective, it's quite a typical developmental behaviour. But there are, not in all cases, it, obviously there's some that are more problematic and, and the intentions and the motivations underneath are a little bit more pathological. Um, so that's what some of the work we've done is around, is looking at how do we distinguish between what's, you know, developmentally typical fire interest and, and some fire play and, and it, of course that needs intervention and how then do we distinguish those uh, from ones that are more problematic and may need some psychological intervention to target some underlying or underlying mental health concerns that might be contributing to their behaviour. It's such important work and you've developed screening tools that um, the Victorian Youth Fire Program utilise. When does a behaviour tip over? You know, what, what goes from playing with a packet of matches, because fire is interesting, let's face it, to something that is more concerning and might even lend, lead a young person onto many years of antisocial behaviour, actually, because there's that connection too, isn't there? This is yeah. part of a trajectory that can really occur for young people. Yeah, look, there definitely is. Um, again, not in all cases. Um, I think for the for the majority of cases, it is just, like I said, a typical developmental behaviour. But you're right, there is a portion, um, a very small portion that will go on to become arsonists. Um, but a bigger portion that will go on to engage in other antisocial activities. So this is a pretty small field of research, I have to be honest. It's a very hard field to do research in because fire setting and fire lighting is a covert activity. Um, you know, we don't often know who's doing it and when they're doing it and um, we can't be there with our data analysis tools to, to collect that data at the time. But um, 
What we do know is that there's a curious, what we would call low-risk kind, um, and then there's some more pathological kinds. So, and usually that's driven by some sort of underlying uh, emotional turmoil. It's a bit of a cry for help or some delinquent behaviour, antisocial behaviour, and that's the one that often will, those young people will often go on a, a path that's that more antisocial trajectory that we'd want to try and intervene with and stop early on before it gets to that. I'm interested then, given that it is hard to access uh, your research subjects, young people who are lighting fires, what drew you to the work? So when I started at VU, I uh, started working with the Human Behaviour in Fire Research team uh, and they already had an established partnership with the Juvenile Fire Lighting Program at the um, well, MFB and CFA at the time, but Fire Rescue Victoria now. And so I started working as a research assistant um, in that role and then also working with some other projects that we were doing at the time, actually looking at risk factors for either dying in a fire or surviving a fire. Um, that's, that's what drew me. And then I, you know, through doing that work, I then sort of spoke to the people I was working with and said, I think I'd like to do a PhD in this. This is really exciting and interesting and, yeah. Have you met young people who have become repeated firelighters? We've done a lot of research over the years um, with that cohort. I've been out to on-site visits with the um, fire practitioners that deliver the program. Whether those particular young people went on to light further fires, I don't know specifically, but we've definitely done research with young people in the program that have and haven't gone on to continue. And so what's key here is that your research is informing interventions with young people. And so... Firefighters go full uniform into households where kids have been lighting fires and work with them. So what's the strategy? What is your research saying about what works? What we found in our research is that the the fire program that's is the way it's designed, it's designed to target young people who are at the lowest risk. So the the naively curious fire lighters um, and their program targets those young people very well, very effectively. The ones it doesn't target as well are the ones that have some underlying mental health concerns and do need some sort of um, psychological intervention. Now, there isn't a lot of research yet about what is the best way to deal with young people who are lighting fires for warm pathological reasons and that sort of work that we're continuing to do. Their program deals with the cohort, the target audience very well. Um, it's just the, the more high-risk cases we need to get a bit better at. We've been thinking about risky individuals, but of course risky individuals grow up in a context and in a community and in a built environment. And so uh, Q Professor Zora Wurzel, I mean, you're all about the built environment as a civil and structural engineer. And I wondered if you think we underestimate the role that our cities and our built environment can play in exacerbating the sorts of antisocial behaviours that we're talking about, extreme extremism and firelighting. That's right. That's a very good point, Natasha. Like as built environment professionals, we are a glue that binds together engineering and human health and well-being. And when it comes to built environment, when you talk about health and well-being, it's not necessarily just the quality of the um, indoor environment, but actually goes a lot beyond that definition. And we are talking about human rights, equity, and community resilience. So it doesn't take, um, obviously, uh, a lot of reason to come up with the conclusion that harsh environments grow harsh minds. So, um, and engineers, we are not very often perceived as creative uh, individuals, although the design is the essence of engineering. And clearly, the word design in itself implies creativity and innovation. But Uh, What could actually happen more is that collaboration because we as engineers probably are not um, that inclined to aesthetics, (laughs) to the context, the social context, historical context, geographical context, and all those other principles that are underlying architecture. And we do see a lot of um, designs around us like walkways or 
passages and things that are not very inviting and they don't look very safe. And I'm a strong believer that we need to work collaboratively. We need to make those places more inviting, um, a safer, more human, uh, more human, definitely. Yes, but more human environments are often a little risky for councils and engineers. You know, they're soft places and uh, green places. And look, I trained in engineering, so I'm not going to have a bad word against engineers. And yet, engineers love cement and concrete. We do, <laughs> we do. Yeah, and it's a beautiful material to play with. You just See, need to an think about. Would say that. <laughs> I'm thinking Sydney Opera. I'm not True. thinking. <laughs> I'm not thinking of ugly-looking overpass bridges that are dividing parts of the city and uh, not creating, not integrating communities. I think that's what we need to focus more, uh, to have more inviting opportunities for our communities, because that is ultimately the job of built environment professionals uh, to provide. We need to look beyond. Usually built environment is associated with economic development, but it actually goes beyond that. It goes to protecting natural environment uh, and also providing quality of life for people, whatever it entails. <laughs> well, I mean, thinking of cement and concrete again, <laughs> uh, you've, you've become very interested and focused on how can we make our built environments more sustainable, more resilient in the face of a warming planet. And if you look at one of our primary building materials, cement and concrete, they are, you know, sand used to make them is a finite resource. Sand mining around the world is destroying uh, natural habitats and small island communities and, um, you know, all sorts of things. And also it's one of our most fossil fuel intensive materials. So it's also identified as an industry that really is a big challenge if That's we're going, right. to, going to get on top of That's climate right. change. And these are the challenges that my research team is tackling. I have a really brilliant team of beautiful minds and brilliant minds coming up with all sorts of innovative ideas. Uh, very recently, we sort of converting coffee cups, takeaway coffee cups into concrete. Tell me more. Taking away some sand as a virgin resource, obviously, that has finite and so replacing that with the waste um, that we generate on a daily basis, unfortunately, uh, the figures are really scary. <laughs> daily, Australians consume 2.8 million of takeaway coffee cups. That's take takeaway coffee cups alone. And then the story never stops, obviously. We're talking about all the plastic waste. And many other solutions, I again come back to um, us being engineers, coming up with the great designs, but without that collaboration, we'd end up a lot of times with solutions where life cycle hasn't been assessed. So we have products like electric cars, electric bikes, uh, solar panels, but what happens to them once their useful life is at the end? Just the other day, there was a news item that 40 million tons of uh, wind turbines is ending, is destined for the wasteland. So these are not sustainable solutions. That's right. Isn't that crazy that the, the very technologies that we're creating to solve environmental problems are actually creating more environmental problems? Now, there's our challenge. You're interested in um, all sorts of interesting materials, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're interested in also building smart buildings. What's a smart building? Uh, smart building is a building that's able to collect a lot of information about its performance throughout the serviceable life. So obviously we're generating a lot of data and monitoring, doing, doing non-destructive testing throughout the life of the structure, which again provides that resilience, serves the resilience purpose, because obviously we have monitoring mechanisms uh, built in and in place. What does that mean? Give us a, a sort of tangible sense of how a smart building could enable us to live better in the face of, say, global warming or, or a drought or hotter cities. Mm. Or That's right. So there are many aspects to it. So whatever we do indoor can be obviously supported by the sensor technology. But uh, from my point of view as a structural engineer, we are really interested to see how the structures are performing, especially those that are hard to reach. So if we have 
structures, let's say, that are in space or very deep under the water or in hard to access places. So we want to understand, for example, the pipes that are un under the seabed, what are the corrosion levels, because obviously that is the warning of impending failure and things like that. So we actually collect a lot more evidence, ongoing evidence, and are able to plan the response because obviously failure of infrastructures are very often catastrophic and end up with life losses. So that's the ultimate. Again, that's back to that ductility that I was referring to that we're designing for, not explicitly, but implicitly. End of the equation is always saving human lives <laughs> and providing enough warning for the impending failure so that occupants can evacuate. In thinking about buildings uh, that are more sustainable, more resilient, you're also trying to learn from nature. I mean, nature has all sorts of forms and ways of sensing and responding to its context. That's right. In what ways are you learning from nature? There are so many great engineers in nature. We call them nature engineers. Yeah. Think about ants, bees, beavers. <laughs> so typically, uh, as researchers, we are presented with a problem and we look for a solution. But in nature, we are presented with solutions and then we are trying to work out what the problem was. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, um, those solutions are multifunctional. So for example, think about the tree, it's there for the whole process of photosynthesis and flora and fauna, but it also supports the roots, it supports the lords, and obviously the whole business that is happening at the foundation level, etc., etc. So it's multifunctional. But the way we can learn, clearly, everything in nature is adaptable, flexible, self-repairable, creates no waste, uses sun as energy source. So everything that we sort of desperately trying to come up with <laughs> and arrive, so life, perfect life cycle assessment uh, performed uh, way up front. So a lot of great lessons. And if we are able to crack those chords, <laughs> um, we'll, we'll have a great advantage, definitely. I love something that you wrote. Nature builds things more gently. Biomimetics has discovered that nature recycles everything used, uses sunlight as a primary energy source and fits its function. So what would a building that borrows from nature do? Self-repair. For example, what happens when we are injured just our body has that capacity to self-repair. But for example, uh, buildings in the earthquake will have that uh, option of relocating basically the connections and repairing. And we find that um, a lot of that technology has been actually used in material science for the cleaning of the surfaces. So they are they're mimicking some types of planes that have that capacity and that's been achieved. But um, And there are a lot of applications in sport engineering, biomedicine, etc. But structural engineering has been way behind. Like in architecture, there's been a lot of examples where forms are mimicked, but performances uh, and functionality is not as much. And perhaps passive designs where we don't need to we can all live off-grid if we are able to achieve that because they're perfect examples of, for example, termite nests that you find in Africa and uh, northern Australia that um, they maintain throughout those uh, high day temperatures and low night temperatures. Uh, they maintain constant 30 degrees. They sort of thermoregulate themselves. Exactly. Yeah. There are some buildings here in the city that uh, mimic that behaviour, but we need to do more of that. Celeste Young... You have, in a sense, embedded yourself closely with the East Gippsland community as part of your recent research. You were in conversation with these communities who had survived really the most horrendous fires in the history of record keeping in that region. And then comes the pandemic. What were those conversations like to have with those communities? Look, I think... Um in order to understand how and why we had the conversation, you have to understand the trajectory of the work we did. So over the last 10 years, we started with the question of shared responsibility and what that looked like, and the importance, I think, very much upfront of how do you prepare for these things and why is there such a, a lack of will to want to prepare early on or investment in those areas, particularly for health and for communities. So when we came to this community, the one thing is um, 
Because in some ways, all of us are trading in tragedy. And I think we have to be so careful about how we go in there. Doesn't matter what area you're trading in with risk or what community you're, you're dealing with, you're dealing with their lives and their, their stories and it's reality for them. So you are a guest in their place. So we went to those communities and we said, we have some money to do some research. What would you like to talk, to, talk about? And they said, we do not want to be called victims. We're not interested in that conversation. And I said, how about strength and capability? Because we'd just done a big project looking at diversity and inclusion and strength and capability. And they went, yeah, we'll have that conversation. So we put out some feelers and we said, who'd like to be part of this conversation? We didn't go out and kind of phone call people. And it was fascinating because people were drawn in and really what we did was give them a place to speak in and we listened. So how we do the research is you go in and you listen, you ask some questions. So we asked about, you know, what was strong in their community because so much of the conversation around disasters is around vulnerability. And I think at the moment people are really rethinking notions of safety and what that actually means for people. I mean, to me it's always been bizarre that you should assume you're safe in a natural disaster. I, I think that, you know, somehow we've lost track with our relationship with risk and how to do it. But I think also in terms of the communities, there's an assumption the community is seen as, as a thing and it's almost othered. So people go, that's the community and that's the government and they behave like that and that's research and they behave like that. So what you get is all these stereotypes and these weird conversations that happen and, and what it's about, because the community are the human face of the emergency management system. You know, they tell you what's working, what's not working, how it works. So we went and we listened and they told us, these are the strengths we have, these are the ones that we think are not they're going down. We feel like they've gone down. These ones have improved. So we called those capabilities. And they were things, what I thought was really interesting was it made me realise we're actually measuring the wrong things because communities put much, much more store in things like kindness, their local knowledge, generosity. And I thought, well, surely if those are the things that are the glue that hold them together, if those start to disappear... That should be the warning signals for us when they stop being kind to each other, when they stop being generous. That tells us that they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So what we tend to measure often is the things that you can see, the obvious things. But it's social risk is so much more about all that nuance and subtle and fuzzy stuff. And I think, you know, we've just... Social risk underpins everything. It's We, we call it the carbon monoxide risk because it doesn't it sneaks up on you and you don't really see it till you're feeling the symptoms and it's a really dangerous risk it sits underneath all the other risks and amplifies them like buildings are buildings put people in them watch them behave bizarrely in a certain circumstance and they create a risk if you look at the environment the way they treat the environment that can create greater risks even the way you build roads and and there was a case in Creswick for example where they concreted one bit of the river and that just created a risk further down. We're taught to think in a very sort of linear fashion about risk, that you have a risk, you know, you might trip over something, you put some gaffer tape on and it goes away. Well, these risks aren't going to go away. We have to learn to live with them and navigate and negotiate them. We have to be able to talk to each other across different levels of government. Like the communities were saying, we want to talk to state government and state government were like, we want to talk to communities, but it was really difficult because they actually don't have the processes that allow them to do it or the safe spaces where people can come together as people and go, all right, this is what we have. You have to understand what risks you're talking about and have the same levels of understanding around those to be able to talk about them. And often in our culture, we're like, as soon as it's risky, people go, oh, we'll shut down that conversation. It's getting a bit uncomfortable and so we're obsessed with comfort but we really need to lean into that discomfort now and open that up and that's where the research is really important. And that's because I mean, we have to lean in because these risks aren't going to leave us. The risk of bushfires are, are not going to leave us. Climate change is with us. It's going to play out in all sorts of ways um, and truth be known we'll probably have another pandemic at some stage too given how this one arose. So your interest is in actually building 
people's innate resilience, in a sense, to self-manage their way through risks. What are you hoping to enable people to recognise in themselves? First of all, I, I think... It's a recognition not only in themselves because the communities actually know themselves really well. So, for example, the farmers were like, you know, we have biohazard training. Why aren't they getting us to communicate with our communities about the pandemic? That would make sense. The communities don't necessarily know each other as well as they know their own communities and they're very diverse and you have to be able to listen in and understand how to listen to those communities It's really about people opening out and understanding each other at a really fundamental level. And it's about inclusion. Now, inclusion is often seen as a really permissive thing. It's like, we'll include. It's not. It's actually about where the boundaries are and who gets to form those boundaries and how they're formed. So with a lot of communities, particularly the marginalised communities, because in the Black Summer Fires you had a lot of Aboriginal communities who were affected, you had a lot of cool communities, you had a lot of lower socioeconomic communities that lived in those spaces. And often they're not sort of engaged with in a way that other communities are. They're kind of excluded out of the conversation, not seen to have capabilities. So we had people with disabilities going, hey, we know how to deal with government processes. That's our life. Yeah. You know, we could help in that way. Experts at it. Exactly. And other people saying, well, we can translate across different communities because we're we're multilingual. And I think so often what's happened is we've had a parent-child relationship with the government. So the government will come in. We've outsourced it. We'll go, someone will take care of that. There'll be a bushfire. They'll come in, they'll put it out and off we go. But I think with these risks now, it's actually about everyone's starting to understand that they've got a role to play, what that role is and how they can do that. Deborah Smith, you're working uh, with police, with other law enforcement authorities to develop tools, interventions, prevention strategies around violent extremism. Where do you start? And thinking about what Celeste just said, how do you engage with the, the perpetrators of violent extremism in Australia? Out of the violent extremists or the terrorists, if you want to use that word that I've spoken with, I've probably only met one that I didn't kind of like on some level. So, I mean, we have to remember these are they're human beings. They, they often do terrible things and have a bad behaviour. But one of the interesting things about um, this sort of crime is that it's often felt to be very altruistic. They're people actually doing violence on behalf of what they think is another, you know, of their broader community. So misguided, uh, yes, um, but certainly not uh, without redemption. And and what we find is that it's actually a really natural process to leave violent extremism behind. Um, so all the programs um, are trying to do is nudge that natural process to be a little quicker than what it would normally be. So we often describe violent extremism as a job, not a career. For some people, they will stay embedded in it for a long, long time. But for the majority of people, they will cycle in and out of it. So really being in in a violent extremist movement is really bad for the person. They're often looking for ways out. So what we look at is at the different levels or the different opportunities that are available, right from prevention, in which case we would look at we don't want young people developing their identity in forums that are basically shaped by white supremacy ideas. This is actually a really, regardless of whether they go on to commit acts of violence, this is a really bad way to develop your identity. Um, and it's going to have a, lo- a lot of social impacts, one of which could be later on violence. So there's a point of intervention there. But that needs to be shaped not as preventing or not, sec- like you can't securitise people and saying we're only intervening because we don't want to be at risk ourselves, you have to actually flip it and make this is a therapeutic, this is needs-based, this is actually about your well-being. This will improve your life exactly, in these exactly. ways. Yeah. And so there's mm. a point of intervention. Um, and, of course, like Cara, the earlier the intervention, the, the more support you can put around a person to prevent them going down this path, the better. Um, once somebody's gone down and, and maybe got to the point where they've been convicted of a, of a terrorist act, well, you know, you you still can work with people. Obviously, it's a you're working from a, a, a different starting point, but it, it, then the focus is on well, how did you know? How's this worked out for you? And you know, potentially, like, where do you want to be? How do you see yourself? What 
you know, what what's your idea? And our uh, throwaway line, I guess, is that, you know, disengagement from violent extremism because we actually disengage people from violence. We don't de-radicalise. There's no de-radicalised program. Uh, it's a disengagement from violence program. It's behaviourally based. And so the focus, so focus is disengagement from violent extremism is really about meaningful engagement somewhere else. So it, it's not just engagement somewhere else, but it has to be meaningful and purpose, purposeful for that person. So you can build a, a healthy life. And, um, and regardless of what you know, type of violent extremist you get involved in, they have a lot more in common than they do in difference. So the, the program is actually ideologically neutral. You might um, frame it differently, you might have different mentors, but it's really about building strengths and building people's capacity so that they can actually desist from crime without actually, you know, having to be monitored for their risk. So whilst the disruption is all about risk, you have to flip that at some point and make it about a therapeutic approach, which is all about needs and strengths. Celeste? Yeah, well, I think our work really reflects the same thing as well, Um, because if you build on vulnerability, it crumbles. You have to be aware of vulnerability, particularly during an an event, but what you build on is the strengths and capabilities. And and, and I think we've underestimated ourselves as communities. I think we have been underestimated by others. And I think, you know, that a lot of the research that's starting to happen now is starting to open that out with the communities. And I think it has to be a sort of co-learning process because if you go in there and you're saying to someone, this is what you do and this is how you do it, you're already imposing something on them. You're not allowing them to discover what their, what their capabilities are. And sometimes it's just a pathway. Once they're on it, it goes forward. Celeste Young, natural hazards researcher. That forum was presented by Victoria University's Risk, Disaster and Resilience Network and hosted by RN's Natasha Mitchell. The other speakers were civil engineer Professor Zora Wurzel, psychologist Dr Cara Dadswell, who works with young people who light fires, and Professor Deborah Smith, a specialist on violent extremism. Certain communities in Australia are particularly vulnerable to natural disasters, and climate change is accelerating their frequency and intensity. Earlier this year, Big Ideas heard from Lismore residents in northern New South Wales about the unprecedented flooding which inundated thousands of homes and businesses. To put it in context, Lismore is used to flooding. Um, the towns that are predicated on this record a planning standard called the 1 and 100, which, you know, in raw figures is 12.6. And I think what a lot of people don't understand, it's not just residents, it was the big corporates, the government offices, everything that were relying on that standard. This flood came in at two to two and a half metres above that. You know, I know myself, my house sits at 13.3, 800 above that. You know, and even taking climate change into account, really, in my thinking, it was like, oh, well, we probably are going to exceed the 1 in 100 at some point. It might come half a metre above that, in which case a lot of places would still have been okay. But it came where I am, it came two and a half metres above that. It came to 15 metres here in North Lismore. And that's what the real shock was. You know, places that were traditionally safely above it suddenly not only were inundated, but inundated up to two and a half metres, which is life-threatening. So, I mean, it led to a breakdown of the warning systems because it was beyond the warning systems in place, the ones the bomb uses, ended up breaking the gauge in the end. And so, I mean, how my day started was, well, long before light. First of all, having my daughter, Kudra, had to help get the boat out from under the house where we'd put it to stop it filling with rain, to stop it actually getting jammed up under the floor. Uh, and that was still in the darkness. And then still in the darkness, my neighbours started calling out to me for help. And then we just had to wait for first light before I could go out in the boat, collect those neighbours, collect a, an old lady nearby who I'd been asked to help. And the moment we were on the water and this, the light was coming, basically there was people on every roof we went past. And people being pulled out of roofs and we actually helped some people who were in their ceiling and were angle grinding their way out. You know, there's a lot of focus upon the peak event. There's a lot of media, a lot of governmental focus. And even for those of us within it, I mean, everyone has a different experience, but certainly my experience has been that I cope much better with with the peak experience. 
the adrenaline and all of that than the aftermath. The aftermath goes on and on and on, and it's ultimately very disempowering for you know people caught up in it. And in this case, as you've mentioned, we had the second flood, which really did less in the way of property damage and a lot more in the way of psychological damage because it really, it really interrupted a perhaps neat sort of trajectories people were believing in that, you know, that there's a traumatic event and then there's a recovery. One follows the other and instead we've found ourselves living with the prospect of just pulsing flooding throughout the season. So, uh, and I think that's affected a lot of people. I know myself, we, you know, we'd, we'd moved back into the house, made it very, very sweet. We were empowered in a way about how resilient our house had been and how resilient we were and it was going all well. And then when the second one came, we had to put everything up again. We still haven't brought it down. You know, we're just living minimally sort of going, well, we're going to wait until winter or something. Uh, and that's certainly my experience is exhaustion. I mean, I was just saying to a friend today, you know, like I'm experiencing incredible exhaustion after all these months, you know, a sense of the rest of the world moving on and <clears throat> this trauma becoming our own private business just for those who are in it and affected. I don't know, sometimes we talk about things like depression or anxiety as if they're an aberration that we have to fix, whereas to some extent in a situation like this, there are a t just a totally appropriate response to what people are going through. You know, people aren't suffering from a condition because they're depressed or disempowered or exhausted or anxious. That's actually a response. The aftermath is the gruelling grind that just goes on and on and on. And I think, you know, finally, just one thing that I, I find a little bit bizarre is the way the ideology of safety gets imposed in a disaster zone. And a lot of government services or corporate services get withdrawn because of this sense that it isn't safe to be in there, which is incredibly disabling and disempowering for the people who are in there trying to recover and trying to get back in their homes. And I, I sort of have this sense that there's a very great disconnect between having a, a pristine standard of safety, which we tend to try to apply in Australia, and then to apply that to a climate catastrophe. It seems odd to me that on the one hand, we can be applying the world's finest WH and S standards, and on the other hand, we can be walking blindfolded into, you know, the most dangerous possible future, you know, and, and it isn't just Lismore. I mean, it's Lismore today, it's droughts out west next time, it's coastal erosion, it's fires. And I think in terms of climate grief, we're all experiencing personal grief, collective grief, but when you drill down into it, you realise that ultimately it's climate grief, that our homes are threatened, but really our big home is threatened and that's our planet. Uh, Shanti, I'm going to go yeah. to you next. Uh, so oh, hi. you created the Lismore Flood Stories audio walk project, uh, originally mm -hmm. to document the 2017 floods that happened in Lismore, but in light of current events, this is now evolving into a portal for all Lismore flood documentation projects so that we can better understand the impact of climate disasters on regional communities. I mean, right after the floods, I had people saying to me time for more flood stories and it was devastating to think about the, the the magnitude of the impact from this particular flood trying to capture our history of experience of being in a flooding event is is it's a really important role to play as a story catcher if you like in a community and there are many people that are now working in that way who will be helping to bring these stories to light and Story sharing is a really cathartic experience for most people when they've experienced a climate disaster or any disaster. It's a really positive way to process your trauma and your grief, uh, the difficult emotions, the anxiety and the angry uh, anger that comes from it as well. And it's been interesting to witness how story sharing has been happening after this flood this time and the important way that social media has been able to catch people's stories. There was a uh, a lot of spontaneous story sharing in the first weeks after the first flood on the 28th where people were sharing their very traumatic stories about being rescued. And now there's stories that are emerging about this long haul of recovery, the sort of ups and downs uh, that, that um, Aidan was talking about. So I think it's really important that we are able to hear these stories and carry them for the community. It's It's so important to be seen and heard by your community and the opportunities to acknowledge that we share these experiences is really important. James, you led a study into the mental health impacts of the 2017 floods in northern New South Wales. Can you tell us about the findings of that research and how it can inform our understandings of what's happening now in 2022 
Sure, thank you. And just picking up on what Aidan was saying about the aftermath, all the, the television cameras are very much sort of on the flood when it happens at the time, but actually floods are all about the aftermath and it's all about the years after. And so, yes, we, we did a study, um, survey study of the 2017 floods uh, at six months post-flood and again at two years post-flood. I think the findings are incredibly relevant, obviously, and probably the first place in the world that's actually done a study of a flood-affected community that's then been flooded again. <laughs> People who were displaced from home for more than six months were particularly impacted in terms of mental health. And obviously that's incredibly relevant for now, where we've got something like, and we still don't have the figures, but it might be something like 20,000 people that have actually been made homeless. And some of those will inevitably be long-term and probably some thousands. The experience of the flood at the time if you felt you were going to be badly injured or feared for your life or were terrified, feeling helpless or hopeless, you had a very high chance of having mental health impacts and particularly PTSD um, down the track. What we've had in this flood is really horrifying experiences at a hugely greater scale than happened in 2017. People were completely overwhelmed, as Aidan was saying, of people on roofs and in, in roof spaces and crying out for help. And, you know, it was awful, awful scenario. What we also found in 2017 was the more you were impacted, again, the, the greater your mental health issues down the track. So, so for instance, if non-livable areas of your home were affected, that wasn't so bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't so bad. But once it got to livable areas, once it got to your business or workplace, then again, you're at much higher risk for mental health problems. On the upside, what's a protective factor is social connection. Another thing I think is obviously very relevant is that what happens uh, in floodplains, of course, is a cheaper housing, and so marginalised communities are disproportionately affected. And again, we found that, um, that something like 80% um, of the people who are flood affected in 2017 were actually in the in the lowest 20% in terms of socioeconomic indicators. And so particularly, you know, Aboriginal community affected, particularly people on low incomes, people on disability support, for instance, those were some of the effects. And one other thing I would say is we also found that people who were indirectly disrupted also had a higher incidence of mental health problems. And that means, for instance, being cut off from social services. Now, what's happened in this flood is the indirect impact has been universal right across the Northern Rivers. Many people didn't have internet for days. People didn't even have a triple zero, for heaven's sake. People were cut off for days. I mean, for days, for weeks in some cases. So, you know, we're not just talking... Lismore here, we're talking rural communities that lost their roads completely, that landslips, that left some houses actually sliding down landslips, others with huge great caverns underneath them. So we have a very, very different scenario this time and, um, you know, a, a hugely greater community, right across community. Professor James Bennett-Levy from the Centre for Rural Health. The other speakers were journalism lecturer Jaunty Sinclair and law lecturer Aidan Ricketts, both from Southern Cross University. You can hear the full discussion by clicking the link on the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for this Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.